Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rose, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome back to series 10 of Food for Thought. I'm thrilled to be bringing you the latest series and I cannot thank you enough for your support which has seen many millions of you tuning in and sharing your positive reviews. For those of you that may not know me, I'm Rhiannon Lambert, registered nutritionist, a best-selling author of Renourish a Simple Way to Eat Well and founder of Retrition, London's leading private nutrition clinic. Over the next 12 weeks, my special guest and I's mission is to expose why so much advice can often be misleading. We'll use proven science to sort fact from fiction and dispel everything that remains confusing in the world of wellness. Almost half of all Brits have tried to lose weight at some point, with the figure rising to as high as 57% for just women and almost two-thirds of dieters saying that they are pretty much on a diet all or most of the time. This week's Food for Thought sees trainee health psychologist Joe O'Brien and I explore how to develop sustainable weight loss with the latest evidence-based psychological interventions. Hello, Joe. Hey, Rhiannon, how are you? I'm really well, thank you. Thank you so, so much for coming on the podcast today. Um, I think, I guess we should start, Joe, with the question that I suppose everyone's probably thinking, what has more sway? Is, is it reason or, I guess, regime, the two R's, reason or regime when you're trying to reach your desired weight? Yeah, I think if you're measuring um, what works best, the kind of approach or the motivation or reason for that approach. I think both are important depending on the individual. Being a, from I guess, a psychological background, um, I might be biased, but I would say that psychology is really important to consider when making those changes. So if you think about psychology, it's the study of the brain and behavior and eating and exercise are behaviors, right? So I think that's really vital to consider when we're when we're going to try and make any kind of change. I think really often, especially when it comes to eating, we only kind of see psychology used when it's an eating disorder, right? Um, when someone struggles mm. with an eating disorder or their health or even their life is at risk. But I guess I would believe, and, and judging from the research that we have in this area, that there are psychological factors that contribute to whether or not someone is able to change. And I'm sure you probably see that a lot in clinic, right? When I talk to dietitians and nutritionists, mm. even as far as personal trainers or coaches, people's goals are often hampered by the, the psychological aspects of change rather than, for example, a lack of knowledge or, or understanding of what they need to do. 
if you look at the, the statistics around, you know, who comes into clinics for weight loss, yeah. things like emotional and binge eating, um, body image issues, motivation issues, even things as far as kind of stress or poor sleep, all of these um, have a really significant element of psychology. So I think coming back to your question, I think the approach is obviously important. Um, the reason for change is important. Motivation is important. But I would say regardless, psychological support really underpins someone's ability to change. I think it gives us an understanding of, of why someone behaves in a certain way. Which is exactly why you're on this podcast. And it's something that in the nutrition clinic, it's my whole philosophy around nutrition is that psychology and nutrition work together. And I just, I can't fathom why perhaps other health professionals don't see it that way because it's so clear to me that they work so closely together. Like you said, I think everybody has a relationship with food. It doesn't have to be an eating disorder to have an emotional connection with food that results in a different type of um, motivation, like you said, or a, a different barrier to change. That There's just so many factors. So let's rewind. Let's take it right back to the beginning. Where exactly, Joe, does the mindset for weight loss stem from? Yeah, I think it can come from a, a lot of places. It's an interesting question. I think first and foremost, what pops into my head is that idea of the idealistic body image, you know, those mm. those kind of body image ideals that we're all kind of faced with. And I guess there's a lot more awareness um, now about it. There's a really interesting study that was done in Fiji by um, a lady named um, Dr. Anne Becker. So what they did in that study was they took a group of girls in, in Fiji in 1995 um, who had no access to TV at the time. It was kind of, you know, they didn't just, they, I guess they, they were never introduced to it. And they investigated what their behaviors were like in terms of their eating, in terms of their own body image, and how these things changed after the introduction of TV um, over the course of three years when they were kind of exposed to Western TV for the first time. And what they found was that the group of girls over the, the three years had, had changed how they felt about their bodies and about themselves because of what they were exposed to, which was that kind of thin, idealistic um, body image. The risk of eating disorders in that group had more than doubled in that three-year time. Um, there was a five-fold increase in kind of weight control measures. And they also did the qualitative piece. So they, inter uh, they interviewed the girls um, after those three years. And a lot of the comments were things like, I'm too heavy or I shouldn't look like this. Mm. There was 50% of those of those girls who were, who were women then who... I guess they started when they were 17-ish and, and grew out of that. So 50% of the women afterwards described themselves as too big or too fat. And I think when you look at what today's society looks like um, and the content that we all consume, it's no wonder that so many people have, I guess, are looking to change their, their body image. I think the thing to take away from it is that the content that we expose ourselves to matters whether we're kind of aware of it, which a lot of us are at the moment or not, our body image ideals are shaped by, by those things and, and I guess the norms that are shaped around us. So I think that's really important to consider and, and maybe it explains why a lot of people feel the need to want to look a certain way. Even if they're aware of it, maybe subconsciously or implicitly that, that body image ideal is, is still there. I think there's also the idea of health being tied in with weight loss. So when people mm. say weight loss, some people associate that with health, right? And, and understandably, um, these parallels aren't necessarily true, though. There's lots of, uh, of data out there to support the idea that we can improve health independent of weight loss. But I guess the messages for the last 30, 40, 50 years have always been that 
in order to be healthy, you must lose weight, right? So I really don't blame people for, for having those associations. And a lot with the maybe the health at every size movement is, is fantastic and, and a great movement mm-hmm. towards that. The body positivity is obviously creating a lot of diversity. And I think that's really helpful in shaping our norms. Um, but there's also a lot of people shouting at the, the people um, who are saying, you know, um, when someone says I want to lose weight people are are maybe Mm. criticizing that a lot more and I think that's difficult because when people say weight loss they often mean something else it might mean health for them it might mean being able to you know um I guess facilitate more activity with their families be able to live a life that's different for them and I think maybe traditionally our associations have been with weight loss so I think it can come from a number of different areas but those would be two that kind of spring to mind straight away I mean, thank you so much, first of all, for clarifying the fact that weight loss doesn't dictate health, because that's something that we're constantly trying to say on this podcast. And of course, we have a no judgment area. We discuss topics on food for thought. But you're right. I feel that all too often there's lots of people shouting at one another about different areas. And actually, if we all just teamed up and accepted all these different areas, we'd actually have a much better outlook, I think. Like you said, how on earth can we avoid these images? You can't. So we have to be exposed to everything in order to have some kind of normal norm, (laughs) as you say. But it's tough. And I think particularly the judgment area, Joe, and it's something you must, I'm sure, in your line of work hear a lot. I mean, we get it in the clinic with people feeling that they feel it from their family members, from other people on the internet or their friends. And if they say, like you said, they want to lose weight straight away, there may be someone trying to perhaps sabotage or say, no, it's wrong. You should embrace who you are. You know, these kind of phrases, whereas yeah, like you said, it doesn't necessarily mean it's hard, isn't it? It's hard. I, I think it's very, it's very dichotomous. It's very like one mm. over the other, black and white. Whereas in reality, there's a very gray area there, right? For some people, they will say, I want to lose weight. But what they mean is, by losing weight or maybe getting healthier, improving their health, improving their fitness, they might be able to go for hikes with their family now, where maybe they weren't able to do that before. By mm. improving their, by saying weight loss, maybe they mean something else, but maybe they're saying weight loss because that's what we've always been conditioned to think, right? Even public health messages have gone as far as promoting weight loss as health. So it's understandable that people have that relationship between the, the two things, but I think by saying weight loss often i guess i I know from my own clinic and working with people who do say that they want to lose weight that often losing weight means something else to them it will hopefully give them something else that's not necessarily related to the weight on the scales Um, and i think that's Mm. a really important message to get out there is that there is a gray area in between like losing weight is wrong and like accepting yourself and like you have to accept yourself regardless i think there's a big gray area there that's sometimes missed I know. And there's a lot of talk about self-love from people that um, I think mean well. I I think obviously everybody means well, but you're obviously, you know, training in in the field of of health psychology. And of course, it's so much more complex, isn't it, than just telling people to love themselves, because I see this a lot as well. And then I almost find that some people have this feeling of, oh, well, I don't know how to do that. And then it can be a bit overwhelming for people. Yeah, it's it's a again, it's kind of like diet in that you you don't tell someone what to eat and then they just change. Similarly, you can't tell someone be compassionate 
and then expect them to just be able to develop compassion for themselves. I think that is a skill that needs to be learned. And I think often it can tie in with psychological factors. Like I see people in my clinic who find it difficult to, um, to, you know, have self-compassion and, you investigate some of the things that they've heard before. Maybe someone has said, oh, just love yourself and, you know, ignore the negative comments. But it's very difficult to ignore if someone says, like a complete stranger says something derogatory towards you, or probably even worse, a family member or a friend saying something like, oh, you shouldn't eat that food, like kind of, you know, watch yourself or, or those kind of comments where it's evident that people are judging you. And we're telling people, oh, don't care about your weight. But people around us and in our communities, there are still those subconscious um, negative biases towards people. And I think it's very hard to, to tell people just to love yourself when they've had quite negative experiences of other people and themselves not not being able to, to appreciate them for who they are, I guess. And completely. And would you find, I mean, you mentioned the stats at the beginning um, on younger women, but are there any particular demographics or people that would be more prone to yeah, I guess the psychological concerns around food or around their body image. Um, I think when you look at the stats in terms of, of people who come into weight management clinics or, or people who come into people like, like me, um, I would definitely see more women in clinic. I think that's maybe mm. reflective um, of the weight management services as well. And I think that buys into, again, those traditional beliefs of... Um, women are there to be objectified um, that their kind yeah. of weight or their size is their value all these very patriarchal um, traditional things that, that a lot of us have grown up with um, and I think obviously those things need to change nobody is in favor of someone's weight dictating their value or, or, or their their happiness um, and I think mm. again that idea that women have an obligation to look a certain way or be appealing visually is it's just really unhelpful I, th I think those are the the types of people I guess I would I would see in my clinic the ones who who maybe have been mostly affected by that I mean I tend to find as well that different generations have it slightly differently uh, it's definitely apparent when you do have all the family over at these big occasions like Christmas or Easter or something um with the different views around body image especially you mentioned how women are viewed in society because I do have hope you see, Joe, I'm one of those people, I believe <laughs> that the future <laughs> generations have a chance <laughs> about sounding too ridiculously cheesy, but I do think there's a generational shift. Would you agree with that? A hundred percent. I think maybe this generation is the first time that maybe we've had the kind of data to support the fact that traditional um, views and, and like even weight management services and traditional interventions haven't been helpful. We also have the data to show that like diversity, diversifying even your um, social media feed can mm. kind of promote a better acceptance for things like body image and things like that. So I think it's the first time maybe that science has given us the tools and like research and and things like that have given us the tools to actually know that what we're doing now and, and promoting that diversity is going to be helpful but yeah i hope i hope i'm not coming across too doom and gloom i fully believe i'm, I'm on the same page as you there i think there are things that we can do certainly to create those shifts and there is a huge difference in in generations like the people i work with who are maybe in their 20s or 30s often it's their maybe parents' values that have been pushed on them that has made it difficult for them. Um, so I think mm. that intergenerational thing is actually really interesting to manage because there has been such a shift in that time. 
Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a massive shift. But I can imagine that discipline does cause problems sometimes because when it comes to weight management in particular, do you think that can make it worse sometimes, being too disciplined with it and approach? Yeah, it's interesting because um, there's an amazing systematic review, um, which is where they collate a lot of different research papers and they put them all together, analyze them all together um, by a guy named Colin Greaves. He's the lead author on the paper. And he looks at some of the factors that predicted weight loss maintenance in the long term. So that long term behavior change. And I, I'm going to just run through briefly um, a couple of things that that paper found because it is super, super interesting when it comes to like being super disciplined rigidity. So the idea of, I guess, traditional weight loss interventions where are like severely restrictive um, kind of I'm not allowed X type of food is unhelpful in the long term. Um, so having flexibility in that was one of the positive predictors. The other one was long-term versus short-term ideas. Um, again, it's contradictory to old-school traditional di dietary interventions because you often see that, oh, this is a four-week program to get in shape or a six-week plan to get in shape. People who view it as a lifestyle change, like I'm changing to be this way from now on, tended to be more successful. Um, another big one from a psychological perspective was meeting your psychological needs in new ways. So I mentioned emotional and binge eating earlier. Um, that can really get in the way of, of people reaching their goals or you know being able to change. And I think learning to address emotions and finding new ways of coping can be really helpful when moving away from emotional eating or, or even just changing in general. Um, we mentioned motivation at the start, uh, intrinsic mm. motivation versus extrinsic for people who don't maybe understand that. Extrinsic motivation is um, the kind of external factors that motivate you. That might be like money or social status or whatever. And um, the intrinsic motivation is like doing it for the pleasure of the activity. I think if you're doing it for extrinsic reasons like positive feedback for people, whether that's on social media um, or otherwise, like that slows down over time. What, like, what are we supposed to do when those comments slow down? I think mm. if we want to do it to be a certain size or a certain weight, there'll always be a smaller weight. There'll always be a smaller size. So that, that need, that motivation rarely gets fulfilled. And what they found is that the people who succeed is that what they, what they create is an intrinsic motivation, something that's pleasurable for the sake of it. And I think a really good example of that are like, crossfit and f45 they're examples mm. of where someone has taken exercise and like they haven't reinvented anything they haven't created new exercises but they've packaged it in a way that's intrinsically motivating for people it's more than exercise it's community it is a sense of accomplishment and inclusion so i think intrinsic mm. motivation predicts changes in the long term better than than extrinsic um the ironic thing is that when i talk about these things right these are the things that promote maintenance in the long term and they're all the opposite of traditional weight loss interventions so if you're going back to the old ways of traditional behavior change including things like restriction super disciplined that short-term focus until i get in shape and all of those external goals they're all making it less likely that that's going to work judging by what we have in the research so i think it's really interesting to compare those two things Oh, it's, it's absolutely fascinating. And it, in a way as well, it's, it's almost, dare I say it, without sounding preachy, but it's common sense. But it's almost as if we're sold so many promises and false hopes and fix, uh, quick fixes, 
you know, everywhere, that that's where I think a lot of people fall into these traps of these short-term goals and these extrinsic factors because we're so driven in society with this fast-paced life. I don't think we ever really have time to stop and actually think about what on earth we're feeling and what's what's going on. Yeah, and and that is that's huge. That is is a big part of some of my interventions. Is like paying attention to how you feel. What is it that you mm. feel? What do you need in that moment with that emotion? Like, again, that's the idea of meeting your emotional needs in a new way. And I think you're right. It has been sold to us this way for 20, 30, 40, 50 years. And I think it's really understandable that people see it like that. But given the training that you've had and, and that I've had looking at the research and looking at our experiences when we meet people in clinic it's so simple for us to see those differences but Mm -hmm. all everyone else knows is the 30 years of diets they've been sold and short-term fixes so like it's very difficult i think a lot of the work i'm sure you'll you'll agree is unpicking some of those some of those beliefs in order to to kind of challenge them and see new ways Um, and i think that's that's a big part of the work i think for some people in changing yeah oh everything you're saying I'm just nodding my head constantly going yep (laughs) yep yep because you have to understand your the why factor why you feel in that moment what's happening because a lot a lot of the time I think the ultimate question people want to know is why am I seeking comfort from food and can I change this is it possible yeah I think I think that example is is really common in a first session with me and I often ask okay, you, you mentioned you're, you're seeking comfort from food or for with food. What are you seeking comfort from? Are you uncomfortable? What is the discomfort that you're turning towards food? And identifying what that is, is like you said, identifying that why. Why do you feel the need to turn to food? What is it that is, is creating that for you? And for some people, it can stem back 20, 30, 40 years. It can stem back to childhood. For other people, it's very recent. It can be a significant life event. It can be, you know, just particular work stress. It can be really super generic or sometimes it's, it's quite complex. I think that's the importance of going to see a professional who is kind of trained in this in order to kind of unpick what is food actually doing for me exactly what is it doing for you and that's when the cycle kicks in a lot of the time when perhaps you let's say you turn to food for an emotion then your need is not met with it and then you're still left feeling the same as before you ate the food actually you know a while later and it leads to a vicious cycle of perhaps for some people it's restriction and then binge eating us one example I think a lot of people can relate to now in terms of diets and creating positive healthy habits, what is it you would recommend? And when I say diet, I'm not talking about a restrictive thing. I'm talking about what people eat on their plate. Because in my eyes, as a health professional, diet's actually what you eat, not about a restriction plan. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I look at diet as like the overall dietary pattern. And that's what I'll kind of tell, tell clients when I'm talking about diet. Um, in terms of, of like creating those habits, I think consistency, first of all, if you're creating a habit and then achievability. So habits only become habits when they are consistently done and they are reinforced. And I'll elaborate on that if that's okay. We hear a lot about habits, right? It's such a buzzword, like every kind of kind of coach at the moment is like, make new habits, like that's the most important mm. thing. If there's one thing that I understand from looking at the habit research is that forming habit habits is super hard it's not just as simple as you read in books like some books um will 
show you the habit loop, which is like there's a trigger or a cue, there's a behavior, and then there's the, the like rewards. And people think, oh, if I do those three things for a certain amount of time, it'll just be a habit. There's all these appealing headlines like, oh, 21 days to form a habit. Um, there's a piece of research that's cited a lot that says 66 days to form a habit. I think that's the one that's quoted quite a lot as being you know mm. scientific. What people don't see behind that is the significant range of days that it takes people to form a habit, even in that research paper. So for some people, it took up to 254 days, which is just over eight months. 66 Ooh. days was the median. Yeah, I know. Yeah, 256 <laughs> days. So when, when we look at that, right, some of the behaviors, some of the habits that they were forming in that research study was drinking a glass of water with breakfast and eating a piece of fruit while watching TV. They're just two examples. So some people have essentially taken eight months to develop a habit of drinking a glass of water after breakfast. And yet we expect people are kind of going to be able to make these wholesale changes overnight. And I think that's setting yourself up for failure, right? So I think the best advice for creating habits is not to set yourself up for failure like that. To me, one small change for a whole year is a lot better than having a massive change for three weeks. In three weeks, it's not going to become a habit probably. So I'd say if you're looking for advice on creating a habit, it's that firstly, change is hard, but secondly, make it achievable and be consistent because you know instead of trying to go from no hours exercise a week to eight hours a week, try one or two hours. Try to prove, yourself, prove to yourself that you can do that. And when you have that proven to yourself, then move on to three, then move on to four. I think if you choose these huge goals straight away and they're not sustainable, um, firstly, it won't make it habitual um, or automatic because of the lack of consistency. But also if you fail, inverted commas fail, and um, you know you, you feel bad over failing, you're more likely to give up. So you know that's a, that's a real difficult one when setting goals with people. I think people are often over ambitious in terms of trying to set a new habit. And it doesn't mean they're weak. And I have to just reiterate that a lot of phrases are thrown about, especially in the media, about willpower. And oh. it's not that simple, is it, Joe? Oh, willpower. Mm. I just, I can't. <laughs> yeah. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a, it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. 
I, the way I look at it is like, okay, um, if someone has been eating a certain way or exercising a certain way for a long period of time and they're not happy with it, you can't outwill that. I get people coming into my clinic and they're like so, all they want to do is change. Like it's, it's so difficult for them. It's not a matter of willpower. If willpower was the, you know, the key driver of change, everyone would change, right? Because everyone mm. feels that way. But I think if we only rely on motivation, if we only rely on kind of the urge and like willing yourself to do something, your behaviors will be reflective of that. So the way I describe it is that if you're only relying on motivation, your results are going to go up and down just like motivation does. Like every single person in the world, whether you are a fantastic athlete or, you know, the most disciplined person ever, you'll have days when your motivation is low. And if your behaviors solely rely on your ability to be motivated, then your results are going to fluctuate. So it's about so much more than than just motivation. I think exactly. um, psychology has a huge role to play in kind of unpicking a lot of a lot of those beliefs and kind of getting people to a place where they they can be, I guess, feel motivated. But even if they're not feeling motivated, to be able to engage in a behavior in a way that is kind of in line with their values or their goals. Exactly, it's so much more complex. It's not a simple um, like a government message or a public health message. But I get why it's there, but a move more, eat less kind of thing. It's just not. It's just not applicable to so many people and. Yeah. I guess our mindset and our behavior and that's why diets just don't work because it's just not everything you've just said I'm sure everybody at home is going oh my goodness mm. perhaps that's why this isn't working for me you know because I think we have to also recognize these obstacles and it's the recognizing would you say that's half the battle yeah I want to just come back to what you said there about mm. um eat less move more I, I yeah. find that really really dismissive just really dismissive of of yes. people's um people's struggles people have barriers out there that are far bigger than a simple choice um and i think just that's that's really important to reiterate like mm. the example that i give is like you know one person is out there saying oh it's really easy to exercise but that person has you know three different types of gyms outside their door they have crossfit they have yoga they have uh, personal trainers they have money and somebody else who lives in the suburbs doesn't even have a gym close to them they really dislike walking and then the other person who has all the gyms will say well why don't you just walk and they'll say i don't like walking mm. whereas the person who has all the facilities and all the access they can just walk out and choose what they like because they have all these different options. But for somebody who doesn't like walking or isn't in an area that they can do that, they're obviously less likely to do that. So I think it's very dismissive of the barriers to behavior change. In terms of recognizing obstacles, like that's a really good example. Um, there are lots of different obstacles to, to get over. I think it's important because it can show, I guess recognizing obstacles shows what the barriers are for achieving a certain goal. I think one of the ways of doing that is anytime you are finding it hard to really reflect on it. Um, I don't think, like you said, people have really busy lives. They don't even get time to do that now. I think we really need to use those difficult periods as learnings for ourselves. I think we learn a lot about ourselves in the midst of those difficult moments and pulling them apart and understanding them is an important part of the process. I think honestly, it is best to do that with a health professional who's able mm. to do that with you. Trying to do that alone and like understanding human behavior is, is hard enough. Never mind oh. trying to do that without having having that knowledge or having someone to guide you. Um, like clients have come to me and they've said, you know, I've tried for so long. And I'll say, you know, what have you tried? And they might be like, well, I've 
I've tried to stop as if like sheer mm. will was the reason that it's been un unsuccessful. So I think when we try, we need to try with the intention of if I, you know, if I do um, hit a bump in the road or if I do hit a challenge, undoing what did work there, what didn't work there, how can I change going forward? I think it's only a failure really if, if you don't learn anything from it. So I think picking those things apart with a professional can be so, so beneficial. 100% like you said life lessons that's that's the thing there's so many life lessons and it's also very confusing for people to know who to ask to get this kind of help Joe um I think it's just there's a lot of noise out there especially on the online world with lots of people perhaps they've done a week's course to become a coach whereas yeah. you know you can spend many years training to be a psychologist and specialize in this area it's, just the same in my world of nutrition. It's very frustrating, but it's not fair on the general public. So who are the health professionals that, or what would, should people look for if they're looking for someone like yourself, really, to um, guide them through this journey? Yeah, um, I think that's that's a really good point. I think, like, for myself, it's been, like, and still go ongoing, eight years of training. And yeah. then you look at someone who has a CBT course that they did over six weeks, once a week, mm. um, it's really frustrating to to see like people really turning turning to them in a desperate time of need. Like they feel like I need support. Where do I go? And people are kind of feeding off that again. Oh, I can fix your habits. I know all the science. That kind of thing is is really frustrating. I think the thing to look out for in terms of looking for someone like like me or or like a psychology or, or mental health professional, firstly is that they are qualified, and that means at least uh, an MSc or or doctorate in psychology, and um, but also that they're accredited with a governing body. I think in the UK it's HCPC that would accredit those mm. um, psychologists. Um, other mental health bodies would do that as well. But I think the third part of that is making sure that they have, have experience in your area. So, and that's that's just a simple question. Like, do you work with X? There are people who will have my qualifications who won't work in behavior change or nutrition. Um, similarly, that there are people with other qualifications that will work in that area. So I think just asking the people that you're inquiring about, but just making sure that they're accredited is is huge. Yeah, and it's 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 not that you know you have a bee in your bonnet about it. It's generally that people need the help from the right places, and it's just soul destroying when you know, this advice is probably given from a good intention place, but it, they don't really have a full understanding. And it, it just will send you back to square one, basically, I think. So from recognizing these barriers, Joe, we've discussed how to form habits. What would be your top tips or rather solutions, I suppose? I mean, one thing we do in the clinic, for instance, for nutrition is a food and mood diary. So I don't just look at the food. I want to know how it makes people feel. Um, but obviously for some, keeping a diary may not be the best approach for them. Yeah, I think um, the, the food diary and, and a mood diary is something that I do a lot myself. I would say yes to that. I think the diary has to be a specific type of diary. If you're monitoring a food, it's not calories and weighing. Mm. It's like you know, a basic meal, like put in the ingredients or like the type of food or whatever. In fact, sometimes you don't even have to put it in. You might put in breakfast, lunch, dinner. When you do, when you tie that in with mood, um, again, it's it's a step to managing an emotion in new way. In new ways, is like paying attention to what they are. Label that emotion. Is it sadness? Is it upset? Is it anger? Um, and asking yourself, 
what do I need to do if this is how I'm feeling? I think when we write a diary, it can start to show us links between just our lives, like the context of our lives and eating. For example, I might notice that when I'm home alone, um, I might notice that the urge comes up um, to eat. And that might mean for me that I feel lonely. You know, I'm at home alone, nobody's around, I have a long evening to myself, I might feel lonely. And it's about asking, like you said earlier, how can I manage this feeling in a helpful way so that I don't have to rely on food? Because the thing is, like, food isn't going to cure the loneliness. The loneliness will still be there, but food will kind of help suppress it or manage it in that short term. So, again, that's a, that's a pretty simple version of, of something pretty long mm. and complex. Mm. But that would be the gist of it, kind of untying those patterns of behavior and try and tie into um, those emotions. So if that is a particularly strong emotion, like anger or loneliness or whatever that feels like, what do I need in that moment? What is actually helpful? And I think part of that is is to be unpicked with a mental health professional. But again, if, if you don't have access to that, it is kind of worth noticing those those patterns of behavior. Yeah, uh, that's that's brilliant. And it's actually helped answer a few of our listener questions because we had a lot about boredom eating. Um, what do I do you know, when I feel stressed, whereas I think you quite rightly said it, it's literally about finding out what's going to help you perhaps feel less stressed rather than eating food in that moment. I will add as a nutritional perspective, when you are stressed, your stomach doesn't always respond very nicely to food. So that's the time when you get a lot of digestive um, problems sometimes when you're stressed. Yeah eating or eating without mindfully noticing what's going in but a question we had for you joe um someone has said claudia said is it true that we are wired to overeat i think um wired makes it seem like the brain is like hardwired and inflexible the brain is very much flexible and it learns from our experiences if you look at it from an evolutionary perspective that might explain why um particularly fatty foods or or sugary foods are more appealing because like fat is obviously a kind of protective mechanism from an evolutionary perspective. But the fact that I guess saying the word wired or hardwired would mean that it's, it's inflexible, but our brain responds to our environment, our experiences. So I think that while there is an evolutionary reason why we might, you know, want to eat certain types of foods, I don't think we necessarily um, are hardwired to overeat no yeah no exactly exactly and then Steph um, she has said are the scales actually affecting my mood and opinion of my body more than I realize I can't say for you Steph but what I will say is <laughs> that in general um, what I found in with the people that I work with in clinic is that generally self-weighing for people who have difficulties with like emotional eating or binge eating can be unhelpful the reasons why that is unhelpful is sometimes well first of all it's reiterating that the message that your happiness is associated with your weight your value is associated with your weight it's reiterating the idea that your size and your weight and your appearance are important um secondly what it does for a lot of people is firstly i guess um the first thing i'll say is that when someone weighs in and they don't weigh the amount that they want to weigh it can feel disappointing, you can feel maybe shame, you can feel embarrassment, and in turn, those difficult emotions can sometimes be expressed through food. The other way you weigh in, you do maybe hit the goal that you had or the target that you had, means, oh, I'm doing great through 
my restriction, obviously if you're losing weight, you're in a calorie deficit, I'm doing great through my restriction, I should continue to do that. And people restrict further and further and further. And like I said earlier, there is no end to that. There's always a lower weight. Um, and I think, again, that can reinforce the idea of restriction. And you know um, yourself that be just being restrictive in terms of food physiologically can create uh, an environment where someone feels like they want to emotionally eat or binge. So yeah. what I would say is that if you're someone who is a yo-yo dieter or someone who experiences emotional eating or binge eating, the scales can often be unhelpful in terms of making long-term progress. Um, and I, I think that's an important part to consider. What message are you are you sending yourself and how are you actually responding when you're weighing yourself? Oh, per perfectly answered there. Of course, it's very difficult, as always, to give bespoke information on a podcast, but yeah. um, and that's incredibly helpful, Jenna. We're moving on to our fact or fiction round. So if you could answer fact or fiction to the following. Are you ready? I hope so. <laughs> Putting you on the spot here. Here we go. You eat more when you can't gauge the quantity. You eat more when you can't gauge the quantity. Fact. Stress only means you eat less, not more. Fiction. You can trick yourself into feeling full. <sighs> That's very physiological for me. I'm going to say fiction. Behaviour is the main factor for what our weight is. Fiction. Challenging yourself will motivate you. Not necessary. Fiction. <laughs> to see positive change, you need to be kind on yourself. Often, yes, I would say that's fact. All or nothing is a successful approach to weight loss. Fiction. <laughs> biggest fiction. Um, <laughs> biggest one there. A good night's sleep could be why your weight's not moving. Oh, there's good research on this. I'm going to say fact. Mm, the bigger the plate, the more you eat. Fact. A negative body image won't hinder your relationship with food. Fiction. Well done, Joe. That was very, very good. You answered that really quickly as well. I was impressed. Oh, Lord. Um, <laughs> what is it normally like you go into detail on those? That, that was really difficult. It's difficult because there's so much nuance, isn't there? But I thought you were great, actually. Um, you can or you don't have to, but I think it was great that you were concise with it. The one thing I think we should elaborate on is perhaps sleep and weight because um, yeah. I think our, our listeners will want to know and then we'll finish the food for thought. So, so there is some research that if you are in a calorie deficit for like weight loss um that if you were sleep deprived getting less than kind of five hours the weight that you lose can be muscle mass rather than or the sorry the weight that you lose is predominantly muscle mass as opposed to fat mass mm -hmm. when you are sleep deprived and um, that doesn't mean that you you can't lose weight but also the impact of sleep deprivation in terms of making decisions it impacts our frontal mm. lobes which is the part of the brain that is for self-regulation um, stress hormones are increased when stress hormones increase the messaging to the brain can be disrupted in terms of your leptin and ghrelin which are the hunger and fullness um, hormones so i think there are lots of factors like poor sleep can actually be or intervening for poor sleep can be a good intervention for somebody who is trying to, to make those behavior changes. There are lots of reasons why bad sleep can impact um, your decision making and things like that. 
I couldn't agree more and basically don't have a baby if that's the you right then because that's just not gonna help your sleep at all um joe that does nearly wrap up the episode but we always finish uh, with a food for thought and i'll start by i think mine today after everything we've discussed because first of all i feel like we could have talked for another hour actually on the questions here because psychology is just not black and white as with everything and there's so much to get into but I always try and get across that there are no quick fixes and what works for some people definitely doesn't work for others as well. And anybody kind of preaching a message like that is a little red flag, you know? It's it's not as straightforward, like we said, as just loving yourself or for someone, it's eat less, move more. It's just, it's really not. Um, for anyone on the brink of trying another diet or I guess giving up on one, just know that lots of us have been there, been there too and there's there's answers and there's help out there and I think if you are struggling with anything please do seek out qualified advice and of course Joe, if you want to leave our listeners with a food for thought today a little take-home message what would that be yeah I, I guess I would urge people to to question what they believe when it comes to weight and dieting I think maybe we're told to lose weight a lot and, and that isn't the most helpful for long-term changes in terms of even what I just mentioned there about self-weighing Maybe the things we, the things that we've been doing for years and the things that are pushed at us in terms of marketing and things like that are actually counterproductive. Um, they're not things that I can answer for you, those questions, but I think if you've tried those short-term fixes, the restrictive, rigid approaches, I think maybe it's time to try something new and maybe understand how psychology or a mental health professional might be able to support you in making change. I think just remember that if the underlying issue is psychological in nature, then psychology can be the thing that supports you in making those changes. Oh, Joe, that was absolutely fabulous. And where can our listeners go to find out more about the wonderful work that you do? So I run an Instagram called Head First with a zero at the end. Um, you can find me there. I predominantly post about this type of content. If you have any professional inquiries, it's Joe O'Brien at mentalhealth.ie. Also, I have a podcast that is the Head First podcast. Um, I'm not near 10 seasons yet, but um, <laughs> I have a few on there that, that might be interesting to, to some of the listeners. Of course, Joe. thank you for your valuable time. Honestly, uh, what the work you're doing is wonderful and I'm so honoured that you were able to find time to come on the podcast today. So thank you very much. That's no problem at all. I was absolutely delighted to be asked. If you enjoyed this episode, you'll absolutely love what's coming next week. So make sure that you click subscribe to be the first to hear it. And if you have the time to, we'd really appreciate it if you could leave a review so that we can reach higher highs in the charts and hopefully that will help us reach more and more people. For more information about my nutrition clinic, the books, healthy recipes and so much more, please do visit retrition.com and you can follow me on social media at Retrition on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook and YouTube. 